0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cinematic Release. I'm your host Jeremiah. I have with me today, all the way from Germany, Jana. Say hello, Jana. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about two films: uh, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, because Yana is doing a Tarantino retrospective of sorts, and we will also of be talking. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be talking about Spike Lee's uh, Inside Man. Two directors who I think. Are- oddly have a lot in common, and doing and do so in, like, there's a lot of parallels between the two, but we're going to start off first with uh, Jackie Brown, which, for those of you who haven't seen it, is Tarantino's third film from 1997, and is the only adaptation he's ever done by the author Elmore Leonard, based off his book, Rum Punch, and Tarantino did something sort of uh, interesting, he took the story, and he changed the race of Jackie in the book She's White, and he made her black for the movie, and then made the whole movie not just an adaptation, but an homage to exploitation. And, Yana, um, how familiar are you with uh, black exploitation?
1: Um... I think I sort of know what it means. <laughs> like, I can infer, but the thing is, it's not exactly a topic I grew up with.
0: Right, um... So... Black Blackploitation is essentially a movement that happened in the 60s and 70s uh, when the studios, the studio system uh, fell apart. Independent movies began to f- uh, form up and you started to be able to make movies without big budgets and without the studios backing. And mm-hmm. what people in the black community began to do was to be able to make movies about themselves. But because only a certain type of movie would be like, people really were interested in. They started making, basically, movies like Superfly and um, Shaft. Um, the infamous uh, Sweet Sweetbacks Badass Song, which was the first uh, produced, financed, written, and directed movie by uh, black people. uh mm-hmm. And basically, it was just a genre film of low-budget, Almost like pulp stories involving with uh, either black directors and crew members, or mainly because of the time black cast members. And it was uh, a lot of uh, Tupac and a lot of a uh, hip hop community like to call back to those times because it was really a time in which black people were allowed to be the heroes. And while they were still, while they did have to conform to certain stereotypes, they managed to use those. Uh, Conform to the stereotypes while also breaking other stereotypes if that makes any sense.
1: So you mean like uh the, the kind of hyper not directly hyper violence but very violent kind of storytelling?
0: Yes. You had a lot of uh there were a lot a lot of uh the stereotype of uh black pimps and black hoes, so to speak. That's oh. from black quotation.
1: The thing uh red videos of the two thousand were inspired by high seed. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, Jackie uh, Jackie Brown, played by Pam Grier, she herself was a huge black exploitation star. She was um, there was a series of films uh, of Coffee, uh, Black Coffee, and she was also, and I believe, in one of the Shaft films. But she was a uh, she was uh, a huge part of the black exploitation film, so that's why he actually actively sought her out for this movie. All
1: right, I was starting to think. I mean. Whenever I try to talk about Tarantino to my uncle, who's also a big, big film buff, he was like, you have no idea what this is about because you're way too young to get it. And now I understand that this also applies to this movie. It's amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, like, Jackie Brown, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, is, the basic story is, Jackie Brown is an airline stewardess who is involved in money laundering. Jackie, played by Pam Grier. Do who money launders for Ordell, played by Samuel Jackson, who is a gun uh, a gun dealer and a gun smuggler. And what happens is Jackie gets busted with some cocaine on, one, on her way back by the ATF. And what happens is Ordell then tries to... All his money's in Mexico, and she comes up with a plan to get all his money into America while also trying to diminish her jail time. And at the same time, a bail bondsman comes into play, and they start a romantic relationship, and if you've never read an Elmore Leonard book, it's basically a Tarantino movie, there's a lot of uh, what you call Mexican standoffs in which you have like seven or eight uh, people with a gun in a room at a time, all of them pointing at each other, all of them threatening to shoot, there's a lot of double crosses and a lot of stories that run parallel and intersect with each other, and Elmore Leonard is... Hmm?
1: So
0: what you're saying is Tarantino toned it down. Yes. Um, this is, oh my god. Mm, one of the reasons why I love Jackie Brown as a Tarantino movie, it's his most mature movie in terms of like, since he adapted it, it's not his story, so there's a lot of... Tarantino's all over the place in this movie, but Elmore Leonard is also Tarantino's mm-hmm. favorite author. And if you ever read an Elmore Leonard book, it's basically a Tarantino movie minus the Inwood. Uh, like, That's the di- interesting. The style of dialogue is very Emma and like There's a book that Emma wrote called Tishmingo Blues, and one of the characters is obsessed with blues, and there are long passages in the book where he'll just talk to another character about the blues and not in a sort of like, this is this and this is that, but very much in a sort of Tarantino conversational style of, well, you know, if you like this, you like that, and all that is just because what he did is this. And it's in very sort of like conversational informal style, much like what Tarantino does.
1: So instead of talking about in depth comic book knowledge, let's just talk about music.
0: Yeah. And um okay. There's a lot like the music, uh the music for Jack um, the opening mm-hmm. song. That is from a black exploitation movie called Across Hundred and Tenth Street. Of
1: course it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kind of floored right now because we really have no idea about this genre over here. Like I can identify Kung Fu movies or Samurai movies or Westerns or whatever or heist movies and I right. can sort of I can sort of um, you know recognize the songs used in these other movies but this was just oh I have no idea what this is but I think the music is from the 70s probably.
0: Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of, of course, a lot of little nods to the, uh, Black Plotation movies. Um, the judge who sets Jackie's bail is Sid Haig, and he's from a lot of Grindhouse movies, and he was, he did a, he did a couple of movies with Pam Greer herself. And indeed, um, the, the bail bondsman played, uh, Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester, was really big in the 70s. He got a lot of older actors for this movie. Actors who hadn't really done anything for a while. Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, who now they do a lot, basically got a resurgence in their career because of Tarantino. And this is back when Tarantino had the reputation for rescuing careers. Hmm. But, um, I'm wondering what you thought of Jackie Brown. Like, did you like it?
1: I did like it. I liked it quite a lot, actually.
0: Um,. um you, go ahead.
1: Um, well, I am, as you said, doing this Tarantino retrospective, right? partially because I really enjoyed what I enjoy his later movies, and I have never seen the early stuff, and uh, partially because it's just something very structured I could do, um, <laughs> but so far, this is the second movie I've watched, and it's out of order, because I couldn't, I didn't have the time to do Pulp Fiction before this, okay. <laughs> uh, so I was surprised. Because as I mentioned before, it seems very toned down in regards to the violent context. Like, people are shot in this movie, but it takes about 20 minutes for the first person to be shot, and we don't really see it. We see right. a very far shot of it. And even when shit goes down at the end, and most people in this movie, of this movie die, it's very uh, un-gratuitous. Like, right. there's no blood spraying. The violence is extremely toned down. Um, so there was super... Surprising that Tarantino would do that, well, again, when again, you... this own mo- well own <laughs> movie. So,
0: well, there is there's an interview with uh, Ben Minkowitz, and he's talking to Quentin Tarantino, and he goes, "What would you say to someone who says Jackie Brown is the favorite movie?" And he goes, "Well, I would say to him, then the favorite movie is not a Tarantino movie." <laughs> Because Tarantino doesn't even view Jackie Brown as part of his over. He does it, like, for him, it's like the one time he did an adaptation, and he's talked about how he'll never do another adaptation again. Which is sad, because I think Jackie Brown's actually one of the best adaptations I've ever seen. Because it's one thing to, like, change the race of a character, but he manages to take the book and keep the source material and the idea of the idea, the idea of a older, a couple, midlife, middle-aged couple coming to terms with middle age and still paying homage to an entire genre of film that is largely overlooked by cinematic, uh, by film buffs both here in America and abroad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also never felt like her race was sort of worse or whatever. Like, it made sense, even from just a general living situation, the fact that she uh, was busted once with... Uh, it wasn't even said purchase money or not very strong drugs, and then spend your life at the shittiest airline possible. That's kind of, you know, seems to fit to me.
0: Right, it's like it was very much... I Again?
1: No, okay, you used that word differently, I think. Um,
0: well, I remember watching this uh, last week, and I was struck what? by just how... Because Tarantino, while a great filmmaker, normally doesn't dwell on things like getting older. And the plight That's of Jackie true. Brown as a middle-aged black woman, and the sort of like, okay, I, I, ha, I have a rap sheet, and that makes getting a job harder. I'm an airline student. Before, I have a rap that. sheet, she has a felon. she's been arrested before. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's harder to get jobs once you have convictions on your record. And especially for uh, black Americans. And also it's more like, she's at the point of her life, it's like, I really don't want to learn a new career. Like, this is all I know. And if I get another job, I'm going to have to learn something. And I'm not at the age where I want to learn anything.
1: Oh, should someone say don't the want to learn
0: anything, but at the same time, don't want to start over.
1: Or she's also not at the
0: age where someone would be patient enough to let her start over, just learn a new job, I think. Right. Well, this is a movie where I discovered Pam Grier, and I also discovered Robert Forrester, who played Max Charing. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I adore Robert Forrester. I don't know why, I think I just like the way, like... There's a type of acting that he does of just, like, it's not really acting, it just feels like he's the character. He's not doing anything overly affectatious. he just tells you the line straight. Like when he's describing how a bond works, it's just very, like there's no dramatic flourishes, he's just, this is a guy who's been a bail bondman for 40 years, so this is how he's gonna act. He
1: had a familiar face somehow, but I don't remember seeing it elsewhere. Did he do spaghetti western by any chance? No, I can't use American on Spaghetti
0: Westerns. Um, <laughs> well, no, he he did a lot of 70s films, so he might have actually done some Spaghetti Westerns. I'm not sure if he has. All
1: right. He has the face for it. I don't know.
0: <laughs> he does have... He has a really great face. I will say that. I do love his face.
1: He has a very stereotypical hero's journey kind of face for the sort of grim, little older, tortured white hero. <laughs> Not exactly. sure you already looks today, but in this movie, I was like, huh, you look a bit out of place, but somehow really, really fit this. Uh, I mean, the whole baseball business is kind of a bit like the modernized uh, outlaw thing, right? Like the modernized bounty hunter
0: right. business type. And I, I really liked, in a weird way, um, going back... Uh, we're going to talk about the one thing I don't like in this movie, and we talked about it a little bit, and that's the inward usage.
1: The thing he apparently toned up in, in exchange for toning the violence down?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and especially in that scene when you, the first time he shoots somebody, when Odell shoots Beaumont, played by oh uh, Christopher God,
1: Tucker. Oh, God, that entire sequence, I was just so uncomfortable.
0: Well, it's uncomfortable, A, because of the language, and B, because you know what he's doing. Yeah. And Costantino does a really sort of like, with the language, it's really sort of cringy. But then that whole it, thing with the camera with the camera angle from inside the trunk. And it's just yeah. two talking. And you know, you know, like you know, like you know, the moment Beaumont gets in that trunk, he's dead. The minute there's a trunk involved,
1: yes, absolutely. I've been losing several limbs.
0: And then once he gets in the trunk, he just uh, drives around the corner, shoots him, and there it is. To
1: cheerful music. That is very
0: Tarantino. <laughs> uh, this is also the movie where I discovered the Delphonics. I'm not ashamed to say that, and I still listen to the Delphonics. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but... this What's really interesting is when you, you mentioned his older films, his older films... You can definitely feel the the influence of spaghetti westerns. It's like also a lot of long things. takes. And sort of I like think
1: the whole connection to spaghetti westerns I made because my favorite moment in Kill Bill, which is also kind of my favorite movie, uh, was set to the to spaghetti western soundtracks. Yeah, like the entire break out of the grave scene that was, which is. Yes, so one of my favorite moments in anything ever, and the music was so great, so i went to went to search for it and so I kind of got the that's how I discovered the connection right um I don't think those spaghetti western genres something very familiar around here either because <laughs> we had our own westerns, which were not made in Italy or by Italians, but in in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, it was present day the whole thing where we do our own really romanticized Western stuff. Right. So the entire, uh, the, uh, the, let's say
0: the, the, um, the genre, mm-hmm.
1: like this special kind of niche that spaghetti Westerns are, is also something that's not very familiar around here.
0: Well, um, spaghetti Westerns were popular. Like there are a lot of, uh, Western neo genre, neo Western genres that popped up on the 60s to 70s, especially in Europe. Uh, Italy, Germany, oh. Czech had them. Uh, I believe even um, oh god, uh, France had a couple. It was just an Funny easy, cheap that? thing to make.
1: Funny that you mentioned that. We had um, we have this book series. It's a western, and I use the air quotes because it's written by a guy from prison who has never set foot into the United States. <laughs> about that, it's very. Expensive extremely like this wouldn't fly in the U.S. is what I'm saying. It's extremely romanticized with a very noble savage race stuff, and they they had a very popular movie adaptation around the 70s, which was filmed in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia or I think the Czech part. I have no idea. Uh, countries back then were back then were weird, with a French person as the uh, Native American main character. <laughs> so. Uh, i kind of out of my depth in this regard.
0: <laughs> um, hold on a second. <coughs> Sorry. Um, but no, getting back to the style of Spaghetti Watched One his later movies, watching Jackie Brown, there's not a lot of that there. No. And I think again, that's both... Uh, again, the... I didn't
1: get the... I didn't get the homogenous feel because I had no idea what Jolly was homogenizing, but it worked. Um...
0: Well, he wasn't even really, like, the black exploitation, the feel was there, and a lot of homages were there, but really, um, Tarantino, um, his production company is called A Band Apart, which is Mm -hmm. named after uh, a Jean-Luc Godard film, and Tarantino adores Jean-Luc Godard, Jean-Luc Godard being part of the uh, French New Wave film movement with Truffaut and Cabal and Agnes Varda, and... A lot of the shots in Jackie Brown, while being a black exploitation homage, there are a lot of John Luke Dali type shots, a lot of quick cuts, a lot of like when Jackie Brown is going to the apartment complex and she rings, uh, buzzes the apartment, and is you see her thumb on the buzzer, you see her close to the speaker, Jackie Brown, and then cut to the door as it buzzes open. That is very much something out of the French New Wave the editing style, and the sort of like... I, w- I don't want to say quick cut, but it's a sort of like very precise uh, camera cuts. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And it's interesting because in his early career, you see a lot of that, and then around Kill Bill is when he starts going into the sort of grindhouse, spaghetti restaurant, long takes, blaring music over the sa- over the sa- soundtrack. And that's just like... The- music being loud, but, like, blaringly loud. And using yeah, Encino, sorry, uh, Morcone a lot, and really just almost trying to get away from source music, which is um, using popular songs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, like, I think this is his last movie from the early phase, where it was still, like, the first, it's first Three movies apparently, at least the ones on my list, so Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown are still sort of, they are of course a bit hyper-violent, but they're still kind of set in reality where he just cheerfully discards any connections to reality with Kill Bill and uh, Inglorious Bastards and Django even.
0: Right. Well, there's one thing I do love about uh, Tarantino, though there are a handful of directors who do this, Tarantino especially is really good at him. He has a tendency to make you feel like the world doesn't end at the end of the frames. If you know what I mean. It feels like after the movie stops rolling, the world is still there. Like, a perfect example. And Jackie Brown, when Jackie and Odell are at the mall, and then Max uh, comes out of the movies, and he just happens to run into Jackie. This the, the feeling of, yeah, the plot's going on, but just because you don't see the characters... They're off doing other things. They have a life they're living, mm-hmm. and like so, like the idea of Jackie and Odell setting up the shoes, sort of a sting, and Max is just at the movies, living his life. And Odell's like, "I gotta go. I'm gonna do some shopping." And it's like, yeah, we're done. Like this, this whole idea that the characters don't exist just for the movie—they have lives outside the plot. Oh yeah, that's
1: very uh, that's very apparent in this one. Absolutely. Like, you come into this movie with a feeling, okay, these characters have lived a life. <laughs> and uh, I think it also helps that everyone kind of knows each other already. Right. Like, Jackie already has this ties to Ordell and has had them for a long time. Ordell has been having this business for a long time, I guess. And you mentioned that um, um, Max talks about his long, long past in the business.
0: Right. Which gives all this
1: jaded approach to the entire thing.
0: Not only that, but like when you live in any Pacific like city for any amount of time, you start to know the people within your circle. And it's sort of like it's sort of a reminder of just like how circles can bleed together from different type from different groups of friends. And then like and they it's never taken for granted. They're like, Do you know Sharona? I don't know her. Well she's that one girl you met over here. It's like, Oh, you've met someone so yeah, I've met her. It's like, okay, yeah. And it's just it was so nice that they the idea of knowing people and not knowing people is addressed because normally in movies, all the characters, it's just a given that they know everybody. Mhm. Um, you mentioned um, something you, you really liked Melanie's character, Bridget Fonda.
1: Oh, oh yes, I did. I did because <laughs> I have a very, I have a weakness for these type of Disney female characters, clearly framed to be a stupid, stupid uh, bitch. But um, Melanie was actually way more competent than anyone in the movie seemed to think, and probably than most of the audience seemed to think. Oh my like, like... sh- God! Ahead, go ahead. No, just from my experiences with—I mean, I, well, I was a bit too young to for, to uh, have any idea of what the discourse around this movie was like when it came out, and it was pre-internet day, so discourse was probably not that heavy. Anyhow. It's just, you see this type of character, and she's, like, immediately underestimated within the narrative, too, so I'm pretty sure Tarantino at least was aware of that. Um, and also just there to get on your nerves with um, the things Louis. she says, how she says... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then just, um, if you're introduced to... What is his name? Sam? What is his name? Lewis. Louis. His name was Louis. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, who is... Like, they have to be this old, oh, he's an ex-con, he did a bank robbery, do do and he is just so dysfunctional, so bad at this high business. It's like, ah, why were you only caught so late in your life? What the hell is going on? Well. Like when Melanie is supposed to do her part in this um exchange thing, she would actually have done mostly okay without him. Mm-hmm. And he just shoots her in the parking lot. <laughs> This is so
0: ridiculous. Well, and the one thing that Elmore Leonard has in common in all his books is most criminals are not smart. All right. You do have some smart criminals, but if you're really smart, more than likely you're not going to choose a life of crime. Or if you are, you're going to have it so where you are not immediately connected to the life of crime. It's one of why Odell is constantly trying to act respectable, because he mm-hmm. doesn't want to be confused with them.
1: <laughs> well, that uh, makes sense. It, uh, it's it's, a, maybe inspire Reservoir Dogs? Because Reservoir Dogs also said, like, oh my god, there's a bunch of incompetent people trying to commit crimes, and oh, yeah, you're all dying now, congratulations.
0: <laughs> well, no, and that's the thing, like I said, Tarantino is huge, hugely influenced by Elmore mm-hmm. Leonard. Especially in terms of, like, characterization and how they talk. And the sort of, like, as I said, uh, intersecting parallel stories. You mentioned no one uh, gives credit to Melanie. I think Ordell is very, very aware of how... I would at the very Um, least say how strategic Melanie is. Because he constantly warns people, do not underestimate this woman. The last thing we want is this woman talking.
1: <laughs> yes, and it's just more like okay, I know she's um only out for her own self-interest, and we'll do what it takes to get there. Right. Um, but he still—it's apparently like it baffles me that he tried to use the other girl, Sharona, for the first exchange when he had Melania at his disposal, so to speak.
0: <laughs> well, not only that, because... but the, the 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 very sort of like honesty of you—you you gave someone ten thousand dollars. Who are they to you? Nobody? Of course they ran off. (laughs) $10,000 is a lot of money. (laughs) And it's that sort of thing of like, yeah, there's really nothing tying her to Ordell. (laughs) They're not, he's Um, not particularly nice to her. He's not friends with her. You gave her $10,000. I'm, I would have run off as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Especially with the kind of life uh, he needs.
0: Yeah, kind of, and not only that, the, like, especially the implied sort of, like, almost, because he implied that he has one of them that he picked off of a bus stop, She that she's mm-hmm. country stupid, and it's sort of, like, an implied, like, he's keeping her as, as, at the very least, a live-in girlfriend. And it's sort of implied that maybe she's not there 100% on mm-hmm. her own.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, like, you I mean the, I think this was Sharonda, the black girl that, uh, does the exchange and then whose house, oh, it's his house, but the house she lives in, she's like a background accessory for the last yeah. scene of the movie.
0: She seems unwell. <laughs> she does. And, and, I, and yeah. I like it because, I don't like it, but I like the fact that it's, Tarantino used it to underlie the, Wardell is a very charming character, but it helps underline the fact that he is also a devious, quite evil person.
1: Absolutely. Like, when we're talking about exploitation, this is possibly the worst example, well, the best example, but the worst case of that in this movie. Like, this poor girl seems to not know what's going on around her, and what she does know makes her panic, and, um... She's also not the kind of girl I can see any kind of parent go off to Hollywood on her own. Right. And that's a common story, but who would think that she could survive in the outside world on her own? What I right mean, we be- don't even... She has, like, two lines of dialogue, but the dialogue she does have sticks out for that. Oh, God. When Jackie's like,
0: Are you, you know you can eat. Oh, I, I'm not sure. No, no, go ahead. You can eat. And you realize she probably isn't properly fed.
1: <laughs> or she just has no idea how to act natural. Right. Okay.
0: Something Lewis
1: also had problems with and Melanie a little, but she would have been fine.
0: Right. Um we're gonna move on now to Inside Man.
1: Mm
0: hmm. Do you have anything did you have anything to add, to, uh, Jackie Brown before we move on? Nope. Okay. We're gonna move on to Spike Lee. Yeah, Inside Man. Uh Spike Lee who had a bit of a feud with Tarantino. Uh, because of Tarantino's uses of not only his uses of the word and in his earlier films, but because of Django Unchained. This I even
1: heard of. Like I didn't hear much about Spike but I was like, a feud, Oh, this was the guy who said he wasn't going to watch Django because of his ancestors. Yes, which is a very abbreviated summary of the uh, subject. And back in the day, I was like, oh, yay! But now I understand where he was coming from.
0: Yeah. No, Spike I- Lee is are known he... in America. I when I growing up I was told not to watch Spike Lee movies because he didn't like white people. Uh-huh. And it is he because he is so open about race in his movies and because his movies deal with race, there is a sort of underlying there are not a lot of Spike Lee fans outside of like maybe New York City. Sure, there are across the country, but there's a very specific type of film buff who doesn't like Spike Lee. The -hmm. racist white boy, we'll put it that way. (laughs) To to be blunt about it. Um, But Spike Lee is also... He does a lot of stunts to draw attention to the issue of race. Uh, He did a movie with Denzel Washington, uh, Malcolm X. And when he showed Malcolm X for the critics... He put out a press release saying he only wanted black film critics to show up. Huh. And, of course, a lot of people were outraged. This is uh, using our favorite term, reverse racism.
1: I was about to say.
0: But uh, what he did end up doing was showcasing that there were no black film critics. (laughs) And the fact that a lot of newspapers didn't even have black people on their staff. Well, if they did, they had to send copy editors in place. 'Cause he wasn't bending. <laughs> and so in the, all this sort of hubbub of how dare he, he basically said, Yeah, you know what, you talk about how you want to make us you want us to make films, we're making films, but who where's our voice and about these films?
1: What was this nineteen ninety two even?
0: Yeah, and this like is Malcolm uh, X Malcolm X, I believe ninety two, yes. But mm. He is a guy who is not afraid of controversy and talks openly about race in every film he does, even if it's a genre film like Inside Man. Mhm.
1: was so much
0: subdued until it was For those of you who don't know, Inside Man is with Denzel Washington, Jodie Foster, uh, Christopher Plummer, Clive Owen, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor and um, Willem Dafoe in a small role. And essentially, it is about a bank heist in which Denzel Washington plays an uh, a detective who gets called in when Clive Owen uh, takes a bank hostage. And it becomes basically a standoff between the two as Denzel Washington tries to figure out what Clive Owen is after. And... Jodie Foster is someone who was hired by Christopher Plummer who owns the bank to get his uh, the contents of his safety deposit box out without anyone noticing because he there was a very dark secret in the safe deposit box. It turns out that he mm-hmm. did business with the Nazis during World War II. Can I just say yes.
1: that, we were, that you gave me three movies to choose from and I didn't know any of them so made you choose and you picked the one with the Nazis, the plot. <laughs> just well, pointing I that out.
0: I gave you the day <laughs> movies. They didn't have any Nazi connection whatsoever. Did this one didn't in the one, summary I like, either.
1: <laughs> so I had no idea. Not that I... I mean, it's the kind of Nazi tie in I'm okay with. <laughs> it's just... I, I saw this was like...
0: Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> it just happened to be very serendipitous that this happened, but... Uh well, because it, it's a genre film, it's basically a Bankai-slash-Toster's film, but there are a lot of both blunt and subversive elements about dealing with race and anti-Semitism.
1: It's a bit of a morality
0: tale, really. I'm, I'm, I didn't catch that, what?
1: It's a bit of a morality tale, when you look at it.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, especially in terms of when he's told repeatedly just to let it drop, and he doesn't. Oh,
1: God, yes, that is stupid well, for so many reasons, but I don't think we're there yet.
0: <laughs> the, what, Inside Man is one of those movies that I watch, and I forget how fun Denzel Washington is to watch. Because Denzel Washington does a lot of serious movies. Um, he's, he's only recently getting back to fun movies, but he is an absolute joy to watch. And just the fun he has of just being a detective... And the fact that he gets to play a character that has a hat. I love characters with hats. It's a small, (laughs) weird fetish with me, but I love it.
1: He does work the hell out of that hat, too. He does! (laughs) It's
0: a (laughs) hat. I I mean, I love a Panama hat, but Denzel Denzel makes it work. But there are a lot of parallels between Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino. Uh Mm-hmm. They both have a way with dialogue.
1: I see what you mean.
0: It's not the same sort of flashy style dialogue that Tarantino has, but, like, in the scene in Inside Man, where Clive Owen's character does that sort of, like, sort of die-hard thing, I'm, I'm going to give you a riddle. Oh, and God, this... yes. The way
1: he, also, the way that this is cut, that we do this sort of not entirely chronological thing in the beginning where he summarizes basically his motives, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And then it's kind of this uh, mystery you have solved throughout the movie. Because technically, he tells you the ending in these first 20 seconds or so. Yeah. You just have to get there.
0: You just have to be paying attention. All the dialogue is either very precise or very naturalistic. Like in, like in that scene when he mm-hmm. gives them the riddles, like, what's his, what does Grand Central Station and something else have in common? Like, yeah. What, what, what do they weigh or whatever? And uh-huh. they solve the riddle in, like, under a minute. But then afterwards, like, no, no, he's wrong. And there's this really weird pedantic conversation that everyone has.
1: Oh, that was so great. Like, this is also actually what would happen because everyone is like, no, it has to be this way. No, it has to be that, that way. And even then they're that that like, who anymore? cares? It's
0: over. Let's move on.
1: Yeah. this <laughs> was just so. This was so very humane. I don't know. Because it reminded me a bit of uh, Reservoir Dogs, the scene where everybody gets to choose their own colors and everyone wants to be Mr. Black and they start fighting. This <laughs> room full of full of criminals who are just there They're like, why can't I be Mr. Black? Why do I have to be pink? And the guy's like, "Nobody gets to pick their own colors, I will be here
0: all week. <laughs> well, it's like, like that realization of you always have that one guy. That one guy's like, no, 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 that's not what he said. He said specifically, it's like, oh, shut up. You know we have what an he entire meant. room full of these people and everyone <laughs> keeps going. Everyone. Well, and just... There's a a lot of things that get whitewashed in World War II history. But the (laughs) fact that there are people who did business with the Nazis just for profit. Not out of fear of anything, but just because they realized they could make a killing.
1: And it was quite profitable considering how... uh, you know, part of the reasons people didn't like uh, a lot of Jewish families was that they were quite rich, and those riches had to go somewhere.
0: Right. And in fact, like the, the the ring in the safe deposit box, we find out is from his, our Jewish friends of his that he could have saved but didn't.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that I think the diamonds which he probably used to start building his bank?
0: Probably, absolutely. I would, uh, that's what I. That's what yeah. I have
1: well, he still had a bunch of them, but probably not all. So, <laughs> he, he even has this guilt complex about how he spent his entire life washing his hands free of what he's done.
0: But, like, um, dude, no. And like, are some sins you don't come back from.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, especially if I hiding to get them in the safety deposit box and trying to asylum them to death or whatever. What's better in German, this expression. Um... Well, yeah. He
0: had the like the his original documents that proved his real name or whatever.
1: Probably out of something like, like, uh, well, not nostalgia, but something similar. Because out of sentiment, I guess. Because it makes no sense to keep these things if you're trying to keep uh, keep the public profile of being a very nice and charitable person that he was very attached to. Well, it's How almost.
0: It's one the thing, once it's you find out like what it is, it's like why'd you keep it? Yeah. <laughs> well you wait, you did business with the Nazis, you profited off the death of millions of Jews, some of which you actually knew personally, and you kept paperwork? And you kept
1: a sheet of old paper with a giant swastika on it? <laughs> what?
0: I don't know if I I don't know if you know this, but this is incredibly stupid, <laughs> buddy.
1: This is this thing was unsettled even for Nazi paperwork. And, like, my grandma has, like, this book with birth certificates from a family and somebody, and there was, like, a, a tiny swastika bright green crayon on some page. P- completely random. And this was, and this giant printed thing is more gratuitous than that. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> what's really... You mentioned the, the type of character you really love. You have another one of those in this movie.
1: It's the woman on the phone. I don't think she has... Does she have a she name? She doesn't really have a I, name. Yeah, she's more like the woman with the phone and the boobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anna... She was, she's the one who, who is um, introduced. Also, as like, the type of female character we get to be annoyed at because she's talking loudly on the phone in the right. line in the bank with her friend. But she later has this the testifying scene um, where she makes fun of another guy who like the old one of these stereotypical white assholes who would probably complain about reverse racism, who sits right. in this room after they've all been taken hostage and made to wear masks and be still and just comply, and right. starts this kind of uh, starts playing Mr. Tough Guy. I am not afraid. They can make me wear this mask, and then right. starts being like a baby when they actually do drag him out and punish him for for uh, not complying. And she was like, "This idiot almost got us all killed." I enjoyed that, because she was well, absolutely right, or would have been right if it had been standard uh, hostage-taker people.
0: Well, like, in that same scene, Spike Lee does a very clever thing of the detectives are staring at her breasts. Yes. And, it's
1: and, just, a, and this ties back into another testifying scene where someone can't really identify the uh, female um, accomplice of the, uh, of the people, of the, of the criminals who take over the bank. Right. Except for her um except for her cleavage. <laughs> which applies to total of two women in this.
0: Right. And well and well this is it's just sort of interesting because Spike Lee has a sort of dotted hist a spotted history with feminism. Mhm. He he's gotten better in his later age because he, he even said in an interview, my older films I could I should have been better with, but after, as being married and having a daughter I realize A lot of things I haven't been talking about. Amazing. Right. It happens. It's weird. (laughs) It's amazing what having two women in your life will do to your views on how women are treated by society.
1: Oh my god, they're people. Whoa.
0: (laughs) Well, not just like in terms of the people, but like because he is so focused on race, the one of the things he hasn't really focused on is gender inequality.
1: Which but as funny. he's gotten older, that sort of scrapped into
0: his storytelling.
1: It's a very racially sensitive issue, especially with, black like, women. It's uh, Well, and what's really I fascinating...
0: Know. Go ahead.
1: I mean, of course, it shouldn't... It's not the kind of intersectional little bullshit he would experience as a, as a man, but you'd think he'd have, like, a mother or something, so...
0: It... Well, and I typically... It's not like he's never talked about it. In one of his uh, early but movies, no. School Days... There was a great, there are a lot. There's a storyline about how white women are treated in terms of the hair. Not, not Sorry, black women are treated by the hair, and how lighter-skinned women are treated within the black community. Hmm. It, it's not something he is annoyed. It. It's just something he has admitted that he could have been better on, because he is right. a man that has been some sort of like objectification in the past.
1: Well is someone who works in the film industry.
0: <laughs> but, like, does so, Tarantino tackles race and feminism as well in his own weird way? He does so better uh-huh. in his later films?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's what I like to call, like, feminist neutral, in a way. Like, some people will tell you that Kill Bill is like this amazing empowerment fest because it's women slaughtering each other and um. Not really. Like, <laughs> just the fact that women are slaughtering each other isn't feminist. The fact that they, uh, um, there is this trope: beauty is never tarnished, and the women in that movie get tarnished a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when Yuma Thurman climbs out of the grave, she looks like she's just climbed out of a grave. Right. Um. Oh. This is the truly feminist takeaway: is that the women aren't treated differently than men would be in the same action scene.
0: Exactly. And oddly, you don't I mean, really see. The most feminist thing he's ever done is Death Poop, I think.
1: Um. Yeah, I haven't seen that.
0: You haven't
1: and, seen uh, Death Proof yet? Seen, uh, it's also on my list because... It's, is, it, is it a feature-length movie on its own? It looks like it was just this half it's, of a feature-length movie he, he made. Somebody
0: it's, else. It's part of a movie called Grindhouse, in which it's yeah. a double feature. Um, okay. Robert and Rodriguez made it. Planet Terror... And then he made the second movie, Death Proof. And in between the movies are a bunch of fake trailers for fake movies. So, as an
1: homage to,
0: uh... That's an homage to, to Grindhouse City Cinema, City. which is happening at about the same time as Black Floatation. The whole double feature thing. Double features, um... Double features are huge back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I yeah. talked about a lot on my... I talked about it on my last podcast, actually. Um... But Grindhouse, uh, especially, they would show for, like, a, a week and then disappear forever. <laughs> they were like they were beyond cheap to make. They were made on location, very, very low budget, and they were basically sold. And then the profit came from just the selling of the movie, because they would play a full week and then move, move, move it over for the next film. But, um, getting back to Inside Man... Spy, what makes Inside Man so interesting for me is the fact that we have talked about racism and objectification, and it's still just a really good genre movie about a bank heist.
1: It is. It is. When I was watching this, um, I was trying to figure out why you thought that Tarantino was the best parallel, because to me, it felt like a bit of. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you hear this in the background?
0: I don't hear that now.
1: Is very yeah. which would be very thematic but hey um <laughs> <laughs> because to me inside man felt like uh like some sort of mixed up between the oceans movie oceans 11 and stuff because of the heist element and mm-hmm. the way it was framed and also a little bit like the roland emmerich um modus operandi <laughs> when it's like this one when it's this one central catastrophe that happens and then earth cast of thousands reacting to
0: it that's very interesting i i didn't see that um uh- I will say that Spike Lee is a a literal student of Martin Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese was an NYU film professor for a time. And one of his students mm-hmm. was Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. And they actually trade off on projects all the time. Um, Scorsese has produced a bunch of Spike Lee stuff. And Spike Lee has produced a bunch of Scorsese stuff. What I think is... Really, sort of interesting. I, I chose Spike Lee because I think, in terms of what they try to do with each film, which is something different but still centrally thematically the same.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is uh, Inside Man is Spike Lee's seventeenth feature film. Really, he has made over seventy movies, short films, and documentaries. He does a lot of documentaries. Oh. He mm-hmm. does documentaries. Uh, he did documentaries about the the levee break in New Orleans. He did, He's done documentaries about the church bombing and the Civil Rights Act in Memphis. Not Memphis, but in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, he's much more socially conscious, I would say, than Tarantino is cinematically. <laughs> oh my, yeah. Because uh, Tarantino is socially conscious in life, but in cinematically, way? he's not. Uh huh. And Spike Lee is from That's a sort crazy. of dying age of filmmakers in which it used to be, if you were a filmmaker, you put, you could pretty much get what goes on inside that person's head by watching the movie. Tarantino sort of has this sort of like arms length distance between him and the audience, like outside of the foot fetish. Mm hmm. If you were to watch a Tarantino movie, you'd be like, okay, that's a really awesome movie, and it's really well made, but I don't know what Tarantino thinks.
1: Well, he likes old-style movies, he likes old-style music. Well, again, like with
0: all this sort of surface stuff, but if you watch a Scorsese movie, you get almost instantly, this is a deeply obsessive, Catholic man. You watch a Spike Lee movie, and you know this is a man who cares deeply about race, and deeply about human emotion and connection. And there's, like, there are certain, like, themes they are obsessed with, in terms of redemption with Scorsese, or uh, trying to overcome uh, class and social issues. Whereas you watch the Tarantino film, and this almost World War irony and references.
1: That's true. Yeah. And, in fact, it's even to Tarantino movies and a certain kind of romanticism, but, um, yeah. Well, they uh, also ta- very fight club-ish in that you have to be looking and have to be aware that this is what he's going for to right. really catch up on that.
0: It's almost like, um, someone made a, I'm not going to mention that quote because it requires an immense knowledge of late night TV culture, and I'm not going to get into that, um, there's a, there's a moment in Inside Man where Clive Owen uh, is talking to a young black boy who's playing a violent uh-huh. video game.
1: Oh, yeah, that, which is also the only use of the N-word within the movie.
0: <laughs> and... you could, what unless, is
1: this game? I uh, mean, I got that it was like a Grand Theft Auto reference, but... Uh,
0: was, violence. This- in video games is sort of something that when, Sp- when Spike Lee speaks to the violence in video games what he's talking about is not that video game violence causes violence because he's talked to, he, he's uh, mentioned this in other movies as well like Clockers it's not just violence in video games for the black community it's that there's an entire entertainment culture dedicated to young black men killing young black men
1: hmm. yeah that was this the disturbing part about this about this game like at least in the actual Grand Theft Autos at least the ones I've seen so far you don't just drive around killing black
0: people um well no it's the idea like there are video games where you can do that and mm. it's the the notion of we have a, of a, again within the black community not me I'm white just make it that clear Within a we black are white community of Everywhere young black people look, there is in the entertainment culture, not just violence but the celebration of violence.
1: To the extent that black on black crime is apparently such a epidemic problem. <laughs> and you start, you look at the statistic and start to wonder, um Well, like Yeah, maybe, your perception might be a bit twisted in this regard.
0: The young boy actually says it's like um the one rapper, I forget his name, uh, but get rich or, or die trying. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, it's not the, he's not trying to overemphasize like that black and white crime, like white people don't kill black people. It's the within the black community for him. This is a very serious issue of we. If you want to, if you want the young black men to go up to be better, we need to have. And at the beginning of a movie he did called "Clockers," there is a debate between four or five young black men about about like uh, hip hop, like a, mm-hmm. like NWA and LL Cool J, and the virtue of having clean rap, and if clean rap is an art form, because there is a sort of sense that LL Cool J is less of a hip hop because his lyrics aren't violent. Wow. Mhm. And so basically when you see that it's not so much uh, him saying video games cause violence, it's just his comment on what he believes to be violence that is propagated to black culture and black youth. And
1: normalized and just um and just uh Yeah, normalized.
0: Yeah, normalized this is and like an some... eight
1: year old kid who plays this. Right. With his dad watching on
0: and this in some ways could even be brought into the broader conversation of gun culture. And it's one of the things where, like, yeah, it, like I said, when I was growing up, I was told that Spike Lee hates white people. And I don't believe that's true. I think he's incredibly brutally honest to white people. Mm-hmm. And that makes them deeply unsettled. Like, there's that scene between Denzel and the big cop. And he's like, tell me what happened. And he starts using slurs. Racial slurs. And Denzel just goes, okay, cal- Tone down the color commentary. <laughs> he doesn't berate them or threaten him because he only has so much power. Mm-hmm. And he knows that when a push comes to shove, more than likely it's going to be his word against the white, white cop's word. And he probably knows whose words are going to take.
1: Yeah, I mean, the entire scene starts up with him arriving on the scene and the white police officer in charge so far is like, I want to talk to your manager, essentially. Yeah, yeah well, in yeah, the, the first like,
0: I want to <laughs> talk to the other guy, the white yeah. guy. And in fact, even at the beginning of the movie, he's under investigation for stealing money from a drug bus. And everyone basically says, Yeah, we know you didn't do it, but we have to investigate you because you've been accused. You've
1: been accused. You've been sort of in the general vicinity of this thing. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I, I. for me, I would recommend both these movies, with the caveat of, be wary, early Tarantino movies have some language that are incredibly cringeworthy.
1: Yes, absolutely. He has like a weird fascination with using, using the N-word. At least in this one, he has uh, Samuel L. Jackson use it most exclusive, exclusively, which... Uh,
0: I think that's because be- he has a, a, a very deep connection with Jackson. He likes how he says certain words. Because outside yeah, of the word, no one says "motherfucker" quite like Samuel Jackson.
1: <laughs> I think the word "motherfucker" wouldn't be wouldn't be really a term we use without Samuel Jackson.
0: <laughs> All right, we're gonna have to start wrapping this up. Sadly, we only have an hour to do this. Oh, damn it! <laughs> um, remember to uh, review and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Cinematic Release, and also. Remember to look at our—not look, look at—but see, listen to our other podcasts. Um, Ladies first with Cory and Elizabeth, unabashed book snobbery with Kylie and Julia, and the Phenomenalist with Julia, Kylie, and Gretchen. Um, which I've also been on. Which Jana has also been on. Which is why I first heard you. Um, <laughs> do you have any where people can find you on social media, Yana?
1: Um.
0: Well, I have
1: a Tumblr and a Twitter where I'm called Bohalika. That's a mouthful, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it should be linked on my fundamentals site somewhere.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: yeah. I have. If you a find Facebook. something the same picture that, that uses my author thing? It's me.
0: <laughs> I have a Facebook and a Twitter. J. Sherman Fiction at Twitter, and just look at me on Facebook, uh, Jeremiah O. Sherman. And that's O as a middle initial, not an Irish O. But um, every Wednesday, I have a movie recommendation of the week. Uh, this week is The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking, 1988. In the honor of uh, Wonder Woman. Um, oh God. <laughs> you like Pippi Longstocking, Diviana?
1: I'm still weirded out that this is, like, something Americans actually watched, but there's a cult around that here as well. well no, no, like, uh,
0: 1988, and this was an American-made version of Pippi Longstocking.
1: There's such a thing?
0: Yep. It was a Disney okay. movie.
1: Oh my god. And okay. And it was amazing. <laughs> was it?
0: I loved it as a child. Okay. (laughs) But then again, as a child, I also like Leonard Part 6, so there's really no saying what judgment means as a child. (laughs) Alright, um, that's all we have, that's all the time we have for now, and this has been Cinematic Release. Say goodbye, Yana. Bye! Bye, everybody.